0: Hello and welcome to Borderlines, I'm Stephen Mirrens. Today's episode is the second in what we hope will be many interviews with previous Canadian immigration ministers. The first interview that we did, which was our last episode, episode 43, was an interview with John McCollum, the first immigration minister of the Justin Trudeau government. This episode is an interview with Chris Alexander, the last immigration minister under the Stephen Harper government. Minister Alexander served from July 2013 to November 2015. He presided over the launch of Express Entry, the termination of the Federal Immigrant Investor Visa Program. He prohibited forced marriages and he introduced Bill C-24, which lengthened the amount of time that permanent residents had to spend in Canada to become permanent residents, codified what counts towards residency, for citizenship purposes and provided for the ability to revoke the citizenship of certain dual nationals convicted of serious offences. We discuss all of this during this episode, as well as Minister Alexander's private prior role as Canada's ambassador to Afghanistan and how it influenced his position, and also his 2017 Conservative Party of Canada leadership bid, and some of the uh, immigration proposals that were in it. You can follow Minister Alexander on Twitter at, at C-A-L-X-A-N-D-R. Once again, if you like this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can email me at stephen.murins at larley.com stephen.murins at L-A-R-L-E-E dot com or my co-host, Diana Okonachoff at diana at mccraylaw.com deanna at m c c r e a L a w dot c a. I hope you enjoy. All right. Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration and border-related issues. I'm Steve Murrens, joined uh, by Skype uh, with Diana Kanachoff, my co-host, and we are joined today as well by the Honorable Chris Alexander. Uh, Chris Alexander served as Canada's Minister of Citizenship and Immigration from 2013 to 2015 under the Harper government. Um, Prior to serving as Immigration Minister, he was the Parliamentary Secretary for Defence. And prior to entering politics, where he represented Ajax Pickering in Ontario, um, Minister Alexander spent 18 years in the Canadian Forest Service and most notably served as Canada's first resident ambassador to Afghanistan from 2003 to 2005. And then as the United Nations Assistant Mission to Afghanistan Special Deputy Representative from 2005 to 2009. So I guess you lived in Afghanistan for about six years? Correct. Yes. Yep. Thanks for coming on, by the way.
1: Pleasure. Thanks for having me,
0: Stephen yeah, no, and lo-
1: Deanna. Great yeah. to be with you.
0: Looking to have you. forward to it. I actually, um, I have your book here, The Long Way, Afghanistan's Quest for Peace. And it's much less a memoir than I guess I had anticipated, and really a very detailed description of events that occurred in Afghanistan when you were there. Um, are you planning on writing a similar book for your time as minister and MP? Uh, I'd love to write more. Um,
1: the the Afghanistan book needs a sequel, though. It's now almost 10 years old. And um, unfortunately, the war has continued and now there's a peace process that isn't bringing peace. So um, I'm actually writing a piece for the McDonald laurier Institute um, that will address uh, the Afghanistan issue in a, in a quite an in-depth way. Uh, and I've been writing a lot for think tanks and reviews and newspapers um, because I think we're at a difficult moment uh, in in politics, uh, and especially in international politics. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to write more, but it's not the time to
0: be writing memoirs. I don't think there's too much <laughs> action needed, too much still going on. Um, one of the things, uh, about your book and probably the first question that I had, cause it was a part that jumped out at me was you mentioned in your book that, You gave a talk to a group of students at Glendon College in Toronto, and I'll just quote your book. Their professor told me that they had voted the previous week on the question of whether Canada should remain engaged in Afghanistan. 30 or so had favored disengagement. Only a dozen wanted Canada to stay involved. And then you went on to talk about how over two hours you took them through the story of Afghanistan since 2011 or 2001, sorry. And that over the course of 2 hours, um, you were able to persuade a significant number of them to change their mind about Afghanistan. Just a somewhat humorous note on that packet on that passage. You said that you introduced Yusuf and Zoleika, and I had to flip through the whole book to remember. I don't remember reading about a Yusuf or Zoleika. And when I Googled it, it was actually an Islamic poem or tradition that was being referenced. So that was uh, just... Yeah, Persian
1: poetry. In but in this case, the poet was born in... The most famous poet who um, who who wrote that story and as a classic, who made that story a classic, uh, was born in in what is now Afghanistan. Yeah, that, it was interesting. I mean, I think that uh, experience at Glendon points to a challenge we face across the board. Canadians want um, to do a lot in the world and they want to make a difference um, with immigration policy, with refugee policy, with defense policy, with foreign policy. But it is quite rare these days for the issues to be uh, presented to them, either, you know, on TV in a documentary or by politicians or by a, a speaker in a way that actually um, motivates them and and gives them the depth they need to get passionate about it. Uh, You know, attention spans have been fragmented, the political arena has been polarized, and that just makes people lose interest. Um, So whether it's immigration issues, refugee issues, or an issue like Afghanistan, an issue of war and peace, um, I think we need this long-form... Discussion. We need to engage people uh, in a more meaningful way, and, and podcasts like this do that. So, well done, mm. you. Yeah, no, I. For, uh, I mean, for feeding I'm huge, the audience that we that we all know is out there.
0: I'm mm-hmm. a huge podcast fan, and especially because of the long form topic. Like I know, um, like when, well, just to give two examples, when Bernie Sanders goes on Joe Rogan for about 90 minutes. Or Stephen Harper goes on Ben Shapiro's show for about eighty minutes. There's much more that you're able to present and learn in a long format show than a two minute uh, soundbite on yeah. the on True. a panel for the or well, just the general True. television audience.
1: But but I mean I'll I'll just jump right in there and say you know Joe Rogan and and so many of these people who are hosting. The biggest platforms um, that they, they have ulterior motives in my view I mean they are they are channeling um, at least part of the time views and and um, takes on issues that I that I would classify as uh, extreme unrepresentative and sometimes even propaganda um, so you know I what I want is is to see responsible, Um, hosts that are taking really truthful looks at difficult issues coming to the fore Uh, and somehow the algorithms of Netflix and Facebook and YouTube and so forth are are not helping us in that
0: respect so far so the algorithms on YouTube are (laughs) I often like sign in and I'm like why do they think that I want to know that the earth is flat yeah Um, exactly probably because I listened to Joe Rogan but, yeah. and, and look at the top videos
1: on Facebook over the past uh, few months as the US election has has uh, been everyone's almost daily obsession uh, it was you know these right-wing bloggers hosts um, who, you know for the most part and, and then a few on the far left and there, there's nothing in that top tier that I think you or I would um, would classify as a balanced view. I yeah.
2: think that what you're saying about the, the shortening of the, the attention span is something that I have long bemoaned, that kind of Twitterization of people's um, capacity for dialogue um, and the way in which everything is kind of truncated into a, a punchline um is something for sure that I think has led to this kind of um populist um creating uh you know that's sort of the mainstreaming is now there's this populous approach to things as opposed to real dialogue, real discussion, um you know, controversy. And I think that um especially on these highly controversial topics and there's such a flood of controversial topics, but a very um, sl- slim margin where there's any true discussion and dialogue and a tolerance for the kind of controversy to come forward and for, um, you know, the issues to really be, be showcased in a meaningful way.
0: Couldn't agree more. If you did have two hours to uh, try to, well, what was the perception that you commonly came across that you thought was wrong when you were immigration minister, or just a perception that you thought, even if it wasn't wrong, like, oh, if I had two hours to try to change this frequent perception or statement that I come across, was there a topic that you wish that you had two hours to fully explain? Not that I want to dedicate today's podcast to two hours on one topic, but like (laughs) just the, uh, if there was something like that as immigration minister, especially as I you know, you travel across the country meeting with different groups, uh, meeting with party base, meeting with voters. Um,
1: yeah, it it, it was a, 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 you know, given where we are today, it was a remarkably um, benign period uh, and even positive period for um, public opinion in terms of public support for immigration and refugee issues in Canada, I I um, would celebrate in front of any audience um, the contribution of immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers to nation-building in Canada um, and our, already back then, even more so today, um, uh, role of leadership in, in ensuring... Um, Immigration programs, student programs, um, refugee programs remain strong and remain and retain support. So I didn't find there was there was any big myth that needed to be busted. Um, there were little niches of opinion where misconceptions um, arose. I mean, I think. If there were one issue um, that I could have. um Thrown, you know, highlighted and and brought out more into the open. It it was kind of a foretaste of the larger scale propaganda that we've seen in subsequent years. There are corners of um, the Canadian media environment, including um, in in ethnocultural communities who publish in their own languages, where huge misconceptions about. Um, immigration are put forward without uh, any editorial challenge or letters to the editor for that. Uh, and it's scaremongering. You know, um, y- you will have a, a community or a group be told by someone whose word they respect for whatever reason that you're all going to lose your citizenship or you're not allowed into the country because of this nationality or that nationality. And it wasn't true then, but it does a huge amount of da- damage um to that audience when they read it at the time. Uh, and we really have the responsibility to call out that kind of disinformation. You know, it was happening, as I say, in niches at that time. Now it's happening on a grand scale uh, on, on the major social media platforms globally. Um, and it still needs to be called out, obviously.
0: Yeah, we can, uh, I mean, an example of that that comes to mind, and we can talk about Bill C-24 in a bit, but just on the notion of misinformation I remember in Vancouver there was a local group that had to walk back statements that the Conservatives were going to deport all dual nationals um, and there was the important caveat of where they've been convicted of serious crimes and we can discuss the merits of the bill in a bit but there was definitely uh, some
1: yeah. Well, mis- serious crimes. Mis- I mean, presentations it was
0: presentations of the bill itself. It
1: was, it was three crimes only that are, you know, for which a handful of Canadians are committed. And in retrospect, it, it wasn't the right move. It wasn't a clean uh, policy because um, it could be portrayed as penalizing dual nationals more than people who had only one Canadian citizenship. Um, and it wasn't something that, to be honest, I dreamt up or or wanted to do on my own it's something I inherited as part of a policy process that was already underway to reform the citizenship act Mm -hmm. um but politics has taken its course that provision no longer exists and we move on but you're right the disinformation and misinformation on that issue was really pervasive at the time I ran into it across the GTA you know knocking on doors of 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 People who'd voted for us um, uh, four years previously, but who were now saying, "I hear you're going to deport me." Yeah,
2: it's interesting, though, that you you feel that there wasn't that strong sense of misconception because, from a from the perspective of an advocate, it did feel, from 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 my perspective, just speaking individually, that there was a very strong kind of law enforcement mandate from um, from the administration at the time that you were a minister um, like a strong anti-fraud um, kind of um, anti exploitation mandate um, and you know Steve mentioned c 24 the kind of and I you you know you've clarified that that was something that you inherited as a, as opposed to something that you thought up but um, there are other examples like in terms of um, efforts to you know, end fraud marriages, you know, the conditional permanent residency. Um, And again, I don't think that that was during your time as minister, but perhaps something that came um, prior, I can't remember exactly the timeline, Um, but in terms of um, changing the criminal inadmissibility rules for, you know, loss of appeal rights. um, And again, I think that that might've predated you as well, but, um, but again, this notion that there was a large scale effort by applicants to kind of um, come by immigration, by means of fraud or, um, you know, um, by way of exploitation of the Canadian immigration system. And I I think that that was very much um, my sense anyways of, of this kind of maintaining the integrity of the Canadian immigration system um, and actually, there's another example that I think we, we've, we've put out there as something to discuss as well um, during today's um, conversation, which was um, bills such as, you know, the barbaric cultural practices. Um, um, you know, that was one of the bills that came through, I think, during the time that you were sitting as minister. So, again, this kind of notion of trying to tighten systems up because of this, this sense that um, there was some wrongdoing happening within the immigration scheme as a whole.
1: Well, I, I think, I mean, read um, or reread the, the Immigration uh, and Refugee Protection Act, uh, most of it is about um, ensuring that rules and regulations are followed uh, and that fraud is prevented. That, that's a, a, a focus for the department, for everyone in the government of Canada. And in the provinces and territories who works on immigration every day, because our system is only relatively popular and supported by by Canadians, popular among and supported by Canadians, um, because people have a fairly high level of confidence that the rules are being followed. Um, and I
2: think, and I, I totally agree with that. Um, but there are those provisions that are already in existence, like there are the rules against misrepresentation and there are the rules that, you know, there are the criminal inadmissibility rules. It was just the idea of this notion that these already existing rules needed to be reinforced, that further prohibitions had to be put into place was again like, um, you know, I never had a sense. Um, you know, being a litigator mostly, that these rules were in some way deficient, that we had a system that wasn't capable of abuse or exploitation. Well, I,
1: there, there, there I disagree strongly. I think standards rise over time, and our system, again, is strong compared to the U.S. one because we've continuously reformed it and revised it and updated it um, to address fraud, but also then to welcome larger numbers of economic immigrants, refugees, and and asylum seekers. Um, The United States hasn't reformed its immigration system in any thoroughgoing way since the 1980s. That's why it's so out of date. That's why there are these millions of people who don't have status in the United States who've become a political football. Um, You know, the world changes. We did not... I I had... This was not on my watch just before, but we were part of implementing this. There were people... You know, educated, well-informed Canadians who argued before we put in place new policies to address human trafficking, that that problem didn't exist in Canada. Uh, and then we updated IRPA and other federal legislation, established specialized teams at the RCMP and elsewhere, and lo and behold, we found there was a human trafficking issue in Canada. Indeed, uh, You know, people living in uh, in 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 basically imprisoned in basements in places like Hamilton and being taken uh, to their places of work uh, al- almost, you know, in handcuffs. Um, and so discovering that issue, dealing with it, preventing it down the road was the right thing to do, in my view. And similarly with um, forced marriage. Uh, I mean, this is One of the sustainable development goals under equality, uh, under women's rights, to prevent early forced and child marriage. Uh, And no, it doesn't happen very often in Canada. But we went across the country and met victims who told us, yes, it is barbaric. And lo and behold, there is a UN convention on practices that are tantamount to slavery that names forced marriage as one of those practices. Uh, if you listen to these victims, and this is something, you know, I'd invite all Canadians to do, their videos, their stories are out there. Um, you, you will understand that it's uh, a lifetime of living in fear, a lifetime of uh, having your will trampled, uh, a lifetime of rape. And so we tried to take action on that, as I think all countries should, who believe in the global goals. Uh, Unfortunately, we were willing to talk about this issue. Um, The current government and and governments before us were not. And it's not the only thing to talk about in immigration, obviously. The positive story, uh, the story of openness is the main story. But I think, um, uh, you know, good ministers and good governments have a responsibility to talk about enforcement and integrity, as well as uh, the upside economically, culturally,
0: socially the positive impact
1: uh, of immigration because the two are linked.
0: Yeah, one of the, um, on the, uh, like, on the issue of people who are in the system facing abuse, one of the um, questions that gets asked of pretty much all governments, including the current one, provincially, is where the enforcement is on employers. So Deanna works with a lot of caregivers where employer abuse is rampant. And I think right now, one of the major issues across the system is employers exploiting foreign nationals in exchange for job offers to support their permanent residency. Why, uh, across Canada and the United States, why do you think it's hard, or anyways, to target enforcement on the Canadian employers who are involved in abuse. Um, like, And this is something across numerous countries and levels of government. And I'm just curious, like when you were in government, was the topic of more aggressively going after the employers discussed? Is it a question of the criminal burden of proof? Um, and to what extent like, was this... An- well, yeah, the, the criminal cases... Is- need to be investigated by
1: um police and uh and other authorities that have that power which um which the department of immigration uh uh and citizenship and immigration as it was when I was minister does not have but we did take action um and I think any government with um a real mandate and the political will to make the system better should take action uh, to ensure employers are not abusing the system. I mean, we reformed the temporary foreign worker program, uh, yeah. which had been subject to abuses. And uh, you know, even countries, companies like the Royal Bank of Canada uh, went through scandals um, and investigations related to, uh, I would call it malpractice in that respect. Um, and we also reformed the caregiver program to try and ensure uh, that processing happened faster, that certainty was, established, was, was, was a reality faster for those seeking their permanent residence, and to give um, caregivers more recourse when they were facing abuse. Now, I'd be the first to say there, there, that, that was far from a panacea, there are still issues. Yeah. Um, but, but um, these are issues that were very much on our agenda and we weren't afraid to address, including with you know the largest and most powerful employers in Canada. Yeah. But
2: I, I mean, going back to the, the, the Barbaric Cultural, Cultural Practices Act, I think the biggest blowback about that was about, I mean, and this sort of returns us to the initial conversation about the, the lack of attention span of the, of the general public is that I think that the biggest sort of blowback about this provision was that it seemed to suggest that the barbarism was in some way connected to that culture. And I think that for a lot, the use of these kinds of titles for legislation for a lot really was jarring and that was not something that canada had typically used where we were calling certain cultures or certain practices within certain cultures and again i I don't think that there was large-scale debate that forced marriage was something that um you know, that, you know, that rape was uh, something we didn't agree with, but to call that something like that, that's a Canadian value. And um, that this, that the culture was what was being um, critiqued here. I think for a lot of people that was, that was challenging. And that uh, I don't think that the Liberals were actually in opposition to the legislation in principle, but I think that they, um, that, that they were commenting that this naming was was offensive to some and they in fact, in fairness, have come forward with um, with numerous policies that have been um, put forward with the intention of alleviating um, circumstances dealing with domestic violence, um, that sort of thing. But I think um, just to go back to the idea that these kind of catchy names Um, did sometimes appeal to the lowest common denominator in the sense that they didn't really speak to to some of the larger issues.
1: Um, Well, if you consider the victims that advocated this name, the lowest common denominator, then I think um, we're making a mistake. Um, That
2: wasn't my suggestion at all, it's Well,
1: that's where the the name came from. Uh, It came from victims, and their names are out there on the public record. Um, You're right, all the Liberals did was change the name of the legislation. But I think you'll also find um, they've taken no action on these issues. It is a sustainable development goal to end forced marriage in the world. Um, I don't think you'll find a single liberal minister or even MP who said anything about um, forced marriage in four years because they made so much political hay out of this, saying that it was a license for neighbors to inform on neighbors, to target certain groups, all kinds of populist slogans that were completely untrue um, and my view is that this shouldn't be political. Uh, there should be cross-party support, universal support in Canada for protecting people from practices like forced marriage. Uh, and again, the the whole, the, the use of the term barbaric wasn't something um, I personally dreamt up either. I'm sorry uh, that it became politicized. but uh this came out of partisanship. There was a time um, before I was minister when in the House of Commons conservatives had been challenging uh, Justin Trudeau to use the term barbaric to discuss truly uh, ugly, violent practices and he had refused to do so. Uh, and so some on our side thought it was politically expedient using this term, um, you know, unless we get the job done uh, and protect people, particularly women and girls, from these practices and improve our immigration system and take the abuse out of it so that it enjoys public support, so that uh, we can continue to be an open uh, and progressive country on all of these issues, then it's a mistake. And I'm, you know, I I'm, I, I, I regret that uh, that issue led to so much misrepresentation and, um, uh, and, and such, uh, um, you know, populist um, misconce- misconceptions back in 2015, long before Donald Trump and Brexit and the other uh, waves of populism that we're now uh, struggling to deal with washed over us.
0: No, I've come across forced marriages once or twice in my practice on applications that I've been involved in. And I felt sick to my stomach when I realized what was going on and withdrew from the files. It's awful. And I did find it, I, I found it interesting during the whole debate that when the liberals did take power, they only changed the name. Like there was never... Uh, There was no revision to, I think it also dealt with underage marriages as well as forced marriages, and there were no revisions to the uh, criminal code on that. I don't believe the portions of the act involving polygamy were ever brought into force, but IRCC does prohibit polygamy as a policy right now.
1: No, they were brought into force, and the first um, convictions took place in British Columbia.
0: Oh, okay. I stand corrected. The use of the, uh, um, like, among, it was just... In-
1: among Mormons, uh, you know, which...
0: Yeah. Oh, and bountiful uh, BC. Yes. It's mm-hmm. interesting also from a, um, the division that the word barbaric caused and that term itself. Like, I remember, oh, way back before, during the Martin government, when I was involved with the Conservative Party, Senator, well, then Mayor of Vancouver, Larry Campbell said that the conservative party were barbarians at the gate. And I remember amongst like my conservative circle, people just fuming about the usage of the term and calling mm. the notion that the conservatives represented some sort of a barbaric threat. Like there is something about that term.
2: I guess uh, in my view, that's why we we haven't resorted to using oh, these to kinds lose. of... I don't know
0: Have if you lost, lost me? No, I think we lost Chris. I'm still here. I can hear hear and see you.
1: Yeah, me too. Oh,
0: okay. You okay? Yeah, I I mean, I can't. Oh, there you're back. Okay.
2: Okay. Um, That's why I guess in my view, um, and this was the comment I was making about the titling, is that that's why in my view there is a benefit to those neutral terms of the bills is because it doesn't engage in that pettiness in terms of the names. We don't get lost in those kind of inflammatory debates. And, you know, I think what you indicated, Chris, was that that was something that was, you know, a strategic decision that perhaps was misplaced at an earlier point and that, you know, um, in your view, didn't have the result that was hoped for, you know, and um, and that perhaps, you know, it is kind of a more Canadian ideology to kind of stick with neutral terms, stick with the what is the content of the bill and let the the content be hashed out in in Parliament rather than the more kind of American style naming, the more American style uh, sort of Twitterization of the bill naming where we can kind of lose the plot because we're focused on these inflammatory words.
1: Well, I don't think we, um, as the government of the day, ever lost the plot. We were focused on getting something done. Uh, the most Canadian approach to these issues, I think, is is to take action. Um, United States, not doing very much about forced marriage, disaster immigration policies, uh, historic low in the refugee policy, uh, we have taken action, um, as I say, to reform our system continuously through the 80s, 90s, and into this century. That's what we should be doing. And I don't think the labels really matter here. Um, What matters most of all is is getting the job done. And the sad thing about um, the legacy of that debate is that we don't have teams of RCMP or social workers or frontline community um, uh, experts in our settlement networks or um, case officers at Immigration Canada who are experts in forced marriage. Uh, And so we're not picking up all the cases we should do. And I'd like to see us return to that issue. You can regret the label. and. I might agree with you, to some extent, on whether or not that choice was right. But the saddest uh, aspect of this debate is that the action hasn't been taken for four years. The issue has been forgotten. Uh, And we shouldn't forget these issues, especially when they're priorities for the whole world, as this one is under the UN Global Goals. And there are very few other countries in a position to lead on this issue because immigration has become so devi- divisive in so many um, democracies, not to mention non-democracies. Well, I don't agree
2: that the expertise doesn't exist at the grassroots level, because it certainly does. But, but it doesn't not, agree
1: in, in the government of Canada. What well, has, been, has been spent to train people in the ways that should have happened five years ago.
2: I agree with you that it's not being um, brought, it's not being sort of um, accepted institution that that is not being really leveraged within the institution but the the intelligence the knowledge is there within the grassroots i just don't think it's being properly re- leveraged within If you're not training
1: people inside our immigration agreed uh, social services government services and We're law enforcement the agencies then the job is not being done
2: Yeah i'm i'm on the same page with you here
0: So I want to switch gears to a program (laughs) that you did end um, and which I think might actually be part of uh, your ultimate legacy, which was ending a very unpopular program, although it was popular among certain people who benefited from it. Popular in the niche, yeah. Yeah, popular in the niche, which was the Federal uh, Investor Program. And I believe you introduced legislation with both which both, I don't know if it's still on the books, but it terminated the existing applications. And there certainly haven't been any process since. Um, And just for those who, I'll do a quick one minute summary of the program. My colleague, uh, Ryan Rosenberg, wrote what he basically was like a tell-all on this program, which lasted from the 80s until... Uh, Minister Alexander's time. I don't remember what year exactly it was terminated. But under this program, in theory, investor immigrants would make a $400,000 passive loan to the government of Canada for five years and then get the money back. And the government could then spend what it had saved on interest. So it was an interest-free loan. So it wasn't the government actually getting $400,000. The government would just get the interest that it had saved over those four years on the loan. What wound up happening in practice was designated banks would offer the program as a flat rate to investors. So, an investor immigrant would pay a bank anywhere from $150,000 to $200,000. The bank would then pocket that money issuing different commissions, frankly, as they were known in the industry. to lawyers involved, people who made referrals, um, and then make the loan themselves. And so the banks would profit on a by pocketing a certain percent of a five-year interest-free loan to the government. And I don't have the number in front of me, but I think Ryan calculated that millions must have been paid in commissions and kickbacks. I don't remember if it was... You or your predecessor Jason Kenny, who published the stats that immigrant investors were declaring less income tax than uh, asylum successful asylum claimants. Uh, we both did that. Yes. You both did that. Yeah. So where? So uh, I was just like, did you know early on that this was a program that you were going to wind down and terminate, or was it?
1: Yes, I I think the facts uh, spoke for themselves Mm -hmm. by the time I came into office. There'd there'd been a lot of independent research done, think tank work, academic research, um, lawyers and experts like yourselves. I mean, there are differing views, but there were some who were clearly uh, of the view with lots of um, facts and uh, confirmed stories to back their views up, who who felt that the program was no longer fit for purpose. Um, And and again, it it was a classic example of a a program that was cutting edge for its time in the 80s and 90s, when it came into being in two different forms, um, but which had outlived its time and its purpose. Uh, When we started, it was the first investor program anywhere in the world. It was unique. It was sought after. It was prestigious. By the time we shut it down, there were dozens of other programs around the world, including the United States, most of them with big problems subject to abuse. And it wasn't uh, sort of capturing a category of, of uh, economic immigrant, investor immigrant, that, um, that, that Canada wouldn't um, wouldn't be able to attract by other means and I think the. but I think the main issue here is, is, um, is one of principle. It's very hard to design a program.
2: Uh,
1: I have yet to see one that is successful in this respect where you're essentially attaching a price to permanent residence and ultimately citizenship of your country. It's going to be subject to abuse. Uh, And I don't think any of the jurisdictions big or small around the world that are trying to do this have had great success. That's why we replaced this program not with another big updated program, but with pilots to try and and the current government has continued to pilot different approaches to see if there's one that might work. Uh, But I think what Canada has found over decades of immigration is that what works best is not to ask people for money, loan, investment or whatever. Uh, but to look at them as human beings, to look at what they can contribute um, through their work experience, through their educational attainments, through their uh, language skills, and and then on the other half of our programs to ask, how can Canada help the most vulnerable? Um, Those are the principles that Canadians almost across the board will buy into. Um, I think this uh, is a
2: really hard portfolio for somebody who hasn't ever turned their mind to the policy question to get their head around, because I I totally understand what you're saying, but from the perspective of somebody who has always been a self-made person, who has never really held a nine to five job, who's never been employed by somebody else, who's always made their own businesses, for them it's very astonishing that they haven't got a clear avenue to permanent residence, but to design a program that's not a buy a visa program um, that isn't going to be subject to exploitation, like I can understand from the perspective of a policymaker that it's almost impossible to design one that isn't a complete disaster. And so, um, you know, it's a really hard one to think through. Like, how do you how do you create a program that attracts those really genius people that are going to create amazing businesses, but not create a buy a visa? Um, yeah. But but uh, again, I think that pathway is there in
1: many respects. Um, the provinces have some programs um in in their various forms that lend themselves uh, to to that kind of um, profile. Uh, but also, this is a country that is eager to attract investment. You don't have to be a permanent resident to or, or a citizen to invest in Canada. And if you make that investment, uh, you can, especially under today's rules, pretty much, certainly work for the company that you own here as a temporary uh, foreign
0: worker. Whoa, and once a, you've done it's that, a huge, team, it's, it's, it's a huge a gray zone. Yeah. it's, no, it's uh, not a gray a, zone. It happens all the time. No, but it's, um, it's one of those things where it comes down to the individual officer's interpretation of self-employment. And... There's now whole pages of guidance on the IRCC website to try. I think actually what you're describing is the intention that yeah. um, people yeah, had when they created think the of,
1: program. Think of the IRCC officers. They have to dif- differentiate between people who are setting up bona fide businesses that are really making money, really innovating, really employing people, and shell companies that are just there to give people the excuse to mm-hmm. apply. Yeah. Um, no, no, and the, and um, that's, you know, the, the, that that's, comes back to the earlier issue we were talking about uh, of, of fraud and abuse. But if someone really, I have, I have I, and I've been around a lot of these cases, hundreds, maybe thousands. Uh, I have not heard of any bona fide case where someone invested, wanted to work in the business that they'd set up, bona fide business, and were not allowed to work. Um, and if they're if they're able to work, then they can compete under express entry and the uh, provincial programs. And they will have to compete, but yeah.
0: there's a pathway there. So um, it's um, it's self employment not counting as experience under the Canadian experience class. So where it becomes this huge gray zone is if you incorporate a company and work for the company that you incorporated. Are you self employed. The IRCC website has pages now of guidance on this and basically the answer is maybe. Uh, yeah, well,
1: exactly but that's the thing. Uh, I mean I'm talking about businesses on the scale of what the old investor program was asking. If you if you make a 500,000 or million dollar investment in Canada you can start a franchise. You can start a Oh yeah it's the figuring out of the,
0: the transition to Um, permanent residence that becomes complicated.
1: Yeah, if you're Um, just putting down self-employed, then your chances aren't going to be great. But if you're putting down, uh, I'm the CFO of XYZ software company, or I'm the um, chief researcher of an AI company, um, or I'm uh, running a warehouse in Surrey, that employs 50 people, you're going to be considered differently and,
0: and you'll have you'll have a chance. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think where it happens just in practice is a lot of people skirting that gray zone by not clicking self-employed in express entry on the basis that they've incorporated and possibly as per the IRCC website, it obtained a CRA uh a letter trying to confirm that they aren't self-employed. Yeah, it's um, but, but, but this it kind of thing. gets I to mean, the issue of like the how something goes, how something is going down at the officer level in practice. Um, oh, I know,
1: and and you as lawyers will be more involved in the borderline, if I can use that term, the the gray areas, because that's where people need help, and that's where. Um, but there are, you know, if if you set up a company that is a you know, federally or provincially incorporated, you are not self-employed. You're employed by that
0: company. Oh, I agree. Um, I the, I wish the IRCC website would say that in a super clear three sentences. Another well, I've example. Seen lots of-, of
1: cases. I've 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 given people informally advice to do this. You know, friends. I'm not in the um, immigration business, and they have done it successfully.
0: Yep. So I, oh, I, and I mean, I just take the position in applications normally, like what you just said. That's not self-employment. Exactly. Uh,
1: and and uh, you and I both know that I, I can't give you the percentage that are accepted, but uh, a lot are. So I, I not to say that the issue isn't there um, that Deanna raised about people with, you know, who are brilliant, who are entrepreneurs, but don't uh, have a tough time getting the points to compete with. The, the more conventional immigrant, let's say. Yeah. Um, but, you know, our system has a lot of pathways. Where there's a will um, and, and often
0: a good lawyer
1: <laughs> along the way, there, 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 can be a, there can very much be a way.
0: Well, the other thing that's happened, and actually we should mention this, that you were the minister um, when Express Entry came into, uh, I don't know, Force or the website was launched or however you want to describe it. Um, and I did have a question about that, but one thing to note is I think when you were minister, the points were around 415 to 420-ish they had come down to, and right before the pandemic hit, and I think now it's back to about uh, 480 points are needed, so that the it's a question that is going to have to just continue to be raised, and maybe you have thoughts on how you balance the fact that there's a there's no limit on the number of people who can come as foreign workers, at least there's no quotas, but there is a limit on how many get to become permanent residents, and the competitions for those spots uh, is becoming, you know, harder. I yeah, know, it's hard. huge. Uh,
1: I mean, I, we are benefiting in recent years from um, a dysfunctional U.S. system, from mm-hmm. Europe that is closed for business, UK that is pressed pause in many respects. Um, and so, qualified immigrants uh, are looking to us because we are the only option. I mean, Australia has cut back hugely from where they used to be. Um, and, and so, that does create um, competition, but it also creates benefit for Canada. I mean, sure. when you have the top people coming here, Uh, rather than going to Silicon Valley or going to the city of London or somewhere else um, that helps us. And it's a shame for those who lose out, but there's always been competition in our immigration system. And you you were mentioning highlights of our time. I mean, when I was minister, this was the top um, portfolio for cabinet business. We, partly because uh, Jason Kenney had prepared the ground on many fronts, partly because uh, Stephen Harper saw this as a signature set of reforms for his time in government. We had a lot of highlights, I mean, express entry, um, in my view, is number one, Uh, I think being the first country to say we would resettle 10,000 Syrian refugees uh, nine months before the Obama administration made the same commitment to 10,000 Syrian refugees. Uh, And my view is we should be continuing that commitment uh, and going to 100,000 and even beyond. That would be number two. Number three would be reforming uh, almost all of the economic immigration programs that are part of express entry from, um, uh, well, we discussed several of them. Uh, Fourth would be Citizenship Act Act, reform, most of which is still on the books, Uh, temporary foreign worker reform, creating the two streams there, Uh, and then starting this historic growth in numbers of international students coming to Canada, which has only continued. Um, I mean, these are stories that almost all Canadians are very proud of, uh, and, and I think rightly so.
0: So the website for Express Entry, when it launched, like, what was that first week <laughs> like, a, like, like, was it like it was with terrifying. Obamacare, you know? Yeah, so was like, well, it was like, well, it's like because it all of a sudden, all applications Obama
1: deep, so. had just gone through uh, the big scandal with their online system mm-hmm. to deliver for the first time national health care in the US. And I hope Biden is able to get the US where it needs to be on this, but from a, a software delivery digital delivery perspective, um, that was a a sobering (laughs) experience to have to study. Uh, The Ontario government here with eHealth had had a very tough um, experience, controversial experience, and so we were worried that the thing would crash or not work.
0: Um, If I
2: can interrupt right there, I remember meeting with the bureaucrats in Ottawa right before the Express Entry launch, and they said to me that from a change management perspective, that to launch the Express Entry platform from a software development standpoint, it was a project that should have been something like a five or eight year development delivery kind of timeline. And they had something like 12 or 18 months to do it. Um, I don't remember if I've got my numbers anywhere near right, but that was sort of the the size of the mandate.
1: Yeah, no, I'm sure. I mean, I I was a federal public servant for a long time as well, as you were saying. People in the public service always want to ensure things go well uh, and to take the time to make the system robust and not subject to abuse and so forth. And in an ideal world, we would have given it more time, but uh, we felt pressure to take these outstanding programs online. I, I still feel that the government of Canada is, is behind the curve when it comes to delivering digital service from CRA across to um, Health Canada, which is so much in the line of fire these days, um, to our immigration well, programs, which are now much really more digital and on. online. But w- we could do much better. There are a lot of countries that are doing better than we are. And so we set ourselves that challenge. And, and I think um, pushing the system was the right thing to do because it has worked. Uh, yeah. and, and it. It not only gives people around the world the chance to apply and uh, and first see whether how close they come to meeting the the current standards to immigrate to Canada, but it also lets us move the work around the world uh, and, and use our global workforce in IRCC as a as a flexible uh, living. Uh, adaptable, uh, versatile uh, uh, team to be able to process um, applications when they spike up in one region of the world uh, or another, and to, and to work day and night to improve turnaround and processing times. And I think that spirit of delivering faster service uh, has really um, helped. In, in our oh, I, I, I know there are, pandemic, there are new really. backlogs, like in the in the asylum system, which is probably the development in the past five years, four years that um, concerns me the most. When we left office, there were fewer than ten thousand um, asylum cases in backlog. Now, as of June, there were ninety thousand. Uh, but in other areas, things are fa- moving faster, and that's a good thing.
0: No, I think with the pandemic, especially, it was really driven home, like express entry, at least on the side pretty much continued as was pre-pandemic yeah whereas all the paper-based programs just ground to a halt yeah um and you see it across the anything that was moved online which i think was mostly done under uh the harper government was uh continued kind of as is and i I hope that after the pandemic they really look at moving the family class especially online i agree Uh, should have been done by now yeah Yeah. um so one thing that when i told people that uh you were coming on the universal question that everybody wanted to ask and i say everyone like it was more than you know the handful of people who i was chatting about possible questions with but like um, every like, And I think the immigration lawyer community was really curious, um, you coming in and then having to share responsibilities over immigration. And this question of shared portfolios is something we also asked um, Minister McCollum, because immigration is shared with the Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness, uh, as well as HRSDC, and... Just the fact that one service, we'll call it, is divided in three ministries presents its own challenges for the immigration minister to leave their mark. And then in your case, um, the minister of HRSDC was Jason Kenney, who had previously been immigration minister for like five or six years. And I think he kept multiculturalism Multiculturalism. as well, which I thought was curious at the time. And Stephen Blaney was public service, not public service, public, public, safety. Safety. public safety. So, what was it like as this was your first ministry? Um, a, following Jason Kenney, B, share a multi prong question. A, following Jason Kenney, B, um, having Kenny and Blaney as your co ministers over immigration responsibilities. And see the fact that you didn't keep multicultural or you didn't get multiculturalism, to whatever extent that may have had. Yeah, well, or impact
1: on um, the the smaller smaller question first. Uh, I don't think multiculturalism that that really mattered. Jason had been working on it for years. He kept it. Um, it it didn't affect really my working day. I mean, I still met with countless communities that are affected by immigration in the same way, listen to them. Um, in my in my own view, that um, portfolio should always be part of either immigration or Canadian heritage, the two places it had been up to that point, 2013. But um, Jason, perhaps, was a special case. As for the larger question, I think the division is inevitable. I mean, you have employment issues in every government. You have... Uh, national security and safety issues in every government, and they do relate to immigration. Um, We can't justify immigration programs unless they're linked to our labor policies and employment policies, and obviously fraud, abuse, criminality are, whether we like it or not, part of um, immigration, you know, the daily reality of of delivering immigration programs. Um, So they were good colleagues, and having uh Jason there was a huge advantage because he'd given uh, the immigration portfolio a lot of momentum um, before, you know, over his years in the portfolio. That meant that we were moving quickly on these issues, um, citizenship, express entry, refugees, temporary foreign worker uh, programs, and, and um, able to get a lot done in less than two and a half years that I was there. Uh, Moreover, it was nice to have someone around the cabinet table who knew as much about immigration as Jason. And sometimes, yes, we disagreed. But I didn't uh, find even once that there was something we really wanted to do that we couldn't do because of those differences. We convinced each other, and certainly he had influence um, on, on my views, but I think in cases where he was initially skeptical, we convinced him as well that um, uh, you know the 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 the, uh, the citizenship immigration policy view after his departure was actually um, a step forward, and, and so that meant um, we got a lot done in cabinet and we got a lot done as a government on these issues, and and I think it stood Canada in good stead, um, you know unfortunately. The migration crisis in Europe overshadowed the election where we lost, but it also signaled that um, these issues were going to become targets for populists on left and right, um, for propaganda uh, from beyond our borders. But by having a system that was really supported by all major parties and in good shape in terms of the amount of reform that had taken place, I think that's insulated Canada to some extent from having immigration as a hot button divisive issue Um, and that's because the government of which I was a part made it a pretty
0: high priority all through our time there and we went out on a high note in my view yeah one of the things um Mr. McCallum had said was that when he first became minister he had uh more leeway and that uh PMO, I guess, started to get more restrictive as time went on And when he was minister. Did you find any direction one way or the other when you were minister? Was it pretty consistent? No. I mean, th-
1: there were some issues, as I as I mentioned, that we knew that were already in train, that we knew we needed to keep working on. There are others that came up over our time in office. I found we had nothing but support. You obviously have to consult those two other major portfolios every day. You have to stay in touch with uh, both PCO and PMO in every portfolio. But I found uh, the center, as people call it, to be very receptive over the time we're there. As long as we were doing good work and putting forward credible proposals, um, there was support. And that's why we took so much through cabinet and got so many programs reformed or, Launched for the first time. Uh, the one thing that frustrated me was really something that I know is 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 um, a feature of life for every government. In the months before an election, the appetite for doing things tends to go down, and even the public service um, tends to sort of reduce the pace of work. Uh, because you're getting ready for potential change of government and and so forth. I wonder whether we don't go a bit too far in that respect in Canada. I think the business of government needs to continue. And yes, when power changes, new people are in charge. But I think we need to maintain that tempo of good policy work and good operational implementation uh, up to, through, and, and after elections. You probably see it as well. Um, I think there's, we're a bit overcautious on those fronts and, and uh, yes, PMO people going into elections start to worry about everything and sometimes um, they can't see the forest for the trees, let's put it that way.
0: Yeah. When you, um, after you, uh, after the 2015 election, you ran for leadership of the Conservative Party and You presented an incredibly detailed, which I guess is understandable given your background as immigration minister, plan or, I guess, proposals that if you were the leader of the Conservatives, what you would do. And one of the things that leapt out at me, which was something you also mentioned earlier, was to massively increase numbers. Um, I guess, A, why do you think that would be good? And B, were you like, did you lobby for same when you were minister? Or do you think if the conservatives had been reelected, and it's hard to know whether you would have stayed in immigration or gone to foreign affairs or something, would there have been a similar push for an increased numbers like that? Or was that more like something like a party position or a you position? Yeah, there, there was certainly a debate.
1: Around the table. And I, I, I would say most people in our caucus and cabinet when I was there weren't advocating for larger numbers, um, but I was. And not because um, uh, of any you know, preconceived notion, uh, but because I think this is part of what Canada has always done and needs to do to be at its best. Our immigration levels in the 90s and the beginning of this century have actually been relatively low historically uh, when you express it as in terms of the percentage of the population we're bringing in as new immigrants every year. And so a number like 400,000, which I advocated um, during the leadership campaign and, and, and which the current government actually is approaching you know, um, putting aside the issue of COVID and, and this anomalous year of 2020 for the time being, <laughs> I think it's reasonable because it's not much more than 1% of Canada's population, which is historically, um, not, you know, well below the mean um, uh, for immigration to this country. And with an aging population, with a fiercely competitive global economic environment with a premium on education and those skills, uh, entrepreneurship, innovation, uh, technology-based engineering skills. Uh, I think we do well to, to uh, have these high levels and put um, uh, put um, our economic needs first uh, with the economic programs that we have Well. Doing a lot more than any other country in recent years on the humanitarian side as well, and uh, I mean, let's just think of of what this represents. It's not just you know someone uh, turning on the computer in Mumbai or uh, Lagos or or Macedonia to find out if they're eligible for express entry. These are tens of thousands. Uh, hundreds of thousands over recent years of international students who took the trouble to come to Canada to study and have the connections, have the qualifications to want to stay here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're letting them stay as well. Um, they are, you know, outstand- it's an outstanding model for that's energizing our economy, our cities, and many, many sectors. Uh, and sure, there's a debate about this. I think in the wake of a tough economic period, there will be more debate because Canadians have more confidence in their immigration programs when the economy is strong. And in the wake of COVID, the economy is uh, looking Never peckish and, yeah. and 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 uh, and obviously lumpy. And and uh, some sectors are really struggling. So there will be debate, but I think we need to take a long-term view uh, of these issues. Um, and uh, when you look at the contribution of immigrants, when you look at um, the reputation and credibility that this adds for Canada around the world, the connections that it makes for us around the world, uh, I think it's an extremely um, positive story. And I, you know, I didn't come anywhere close to winning that leadership campaign, but I'm very proud to have been a conservative candidate. You know, I didn't have a seat. Um, I, unlike the lead, the people who got the most votes, um, I'd had an unpleasant experience in the 2015 election. But I'm proud to have been an unrepentantly, unambiguously pro-immigration, pro-trade, pro-diversity, pro-new economy, innovation economy candidate, because that's, I think, where Canada will ultimately go. Uh, and where a next conservative government will need to take the country. Yeah. Well, um, I think- an Interesting uh,
2: question for Steve and I to raise with, um, with the former ministers that we are speaking with is it does, I imagine, I, I imagine it's going to be a common theme that anyone who has held the immigration portfolio, regardless of their political stripe, that there is a strong sense that immigration serves Canada. And so I think that that's something certainly that we heard from, um, from Mr. McCallum. And I I kind of feel like this is a question we need to put to each of the former ministers that we speak to, because, um, I think being in this post, there is a strong sense of how, um, it does, it is part of the, um, it is part of our, uh, you know, it is part of our identity. It is something that there is a common belief once somebody has sat in this post that there is a sense that no matter what your political affiliation, that this is what Canada is.
1: Yeah, and, and think about it. It's one of the oldest portfolios. You know, it wasn't always called immigration. At various times, it was part of employment or part of agriculture or even part of right. um, the Surveyor General's office, you know, right. Uh, right. back in early days of settlement, arguably. But it's something that Canada has always done uh, and done relatively well. And so I think it is part of our identity. And maybe, Deanna, even more so today uh, because of Trump. I mean, I I don't think people realize how anomalous this has been and how strong this populist backlash has been in the United States. For the U.S. to go to its lowest levels of refugee resettlement since the war. is astonishing. I didn't think that would happen in my lifetime. Mm. For them to be targeting certain nationalities, targeting certain faith groups, um, shutting down uh, immigration of high of what used to be considered you know, high quality economic immigrants who f- have started half the companies in the Fortune 500. It's mm. astonishing. It's, it's yeah. I think for Canadians, w- we see it as self-harm on the part of the US. Um, right. I certainly see it that way. I I see Brexit as self-harm on the part of the UK. We have not engaged in that self-harm, but uh, I I will say to you, because I know you and your audience know these issues well, um, we're not immune to these trends. Uh, The guy who came close to winning the leadership campaign uh, that I was part of, Maxime Bernier, whom uh, I, I liked as a colleague, He's gone off and started uh, 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 an anti-immigrant party and it's very niche and it's not going anywhere. But I would never have predicted that one of my colleagues would do that in 2014. Uh, The things that Kelly Leach said in the leadership campaign, you know, very painful uh, for someone like me to watch. Um, I don't think, I mean, when Andrew Scheer, as our leader, said that... uh, Uh, the UN um, Pact, Compact on Migration uh, and Refugees, those two documents, were somehow an attempt to dictate what Canada should do. Uh, I was outraged because I know that that's not true. I know that that line is being fed uh, literally on, on social media by propaganda. And I don't think the leader of major Canadian parties should be engaging in that kind of populist nonsense. Now, there are other things that John McCallum and Liberals have said that are equally outrageous. I'll I'll leave those to one side for the time being and equally untrue. But we have to stay on a path where we can have trust among uh, Canadians on these issues where elected leaders are well briefed and tell the story like it is. Um, there's a real choice during elections, but people don't engage in the inflammatory language that mm-hmm. we see in many other countries, which has taken uh, all the major democracies off course,
2: yeah, certainly even with regard to immigration. Yeah, even in spite of economic nervousness, and I, I like that point, that it's it's a it's a 10-mile view or whatever, 10-kilometer view, <laughs> as opposed to, uh, um, you know, that that immediate
0: nervousness that I I mean and I um, it's like it's especially the I think the popularity of some of Trump's policies or at least the ability of them to penetrate into the Canadian conscious through social media is a bigger threat than realized which was part of like when I saw Aaron O'Toole's One of his pledges, which I'm going to ask, actually, if it's borrowed from your website, was open work permits for pretty much the members of the five I countries, which is United States, uh, UK, Australia, New Zealand. On your website, you had it even broader, which is pretty much open work permits on demand for people from visa exempt countries. Um, I mean, you list out. South Korea, Eastern Europe, Singapore, you know, Japan, like, is it, did, did Aaron O'Toole get his, uh, what he wrote from you? Was that something you guys talked I,
2: about? I,
1: I think it's probably a combination. He, he's always been very strong on this, um, CanAWS, uh, policy train that some people buy into that we should be much closer with New Zealand, Australia, the United States and the UK. Uh. I, I actually think it should be with all the major, um, let's call them stable democracies uh, in Asia, the Americas and Europe. Uh, and the experience here is is from uh, the working visas that we give so many students on a reciprocal basis which have done, you know, all the studies show a huge amount of good um, and, and are generally not abused. So I think there is room for getting closer to those societies. Um, and yes, I, I've seen a lot of the things that I put on, um, put forward as policies in 2017 picked up uh, by colleagues in my party and also by the current government. So, uh, you know, that's the way debate should happen. And if I can't do these things myself in government, I'm quite happy to have other people do them. Uh, I, I think good ideas deserve support, however we can get to them. But we also need to uh, understand how, yes, there's nervousness and anxiety around issues, but change in immigration as in other uh, sectors and portfolios is actually a good thing when it's done right. I remember sitting in Vancouver, probably not far from where you are now, with a group of, let's just call them real estate moguls, Uh, you probably know many of their names, who um, had done so much to to make Vancouver the amazing place that it is um, and, and are obviously targets of all kinds of criticism because of the cost of living and the cost of housing and so forth. But they were they wanted to meet with me because they knew that we were thinking about terminating the investor program. And they said as a group to me that if I did this, if we as a government did this, the real estate market in Vancouver would collapse. In all seriousness, that was their view. Uh, And I was polite, argued, brought out my facts. I got a little bit annoyed that they were taking what I thought was a really wrong-headed view. But looking back, however many years it is, six years, they were totally wrong. Um, Absolutely wrong from A to Z. And so it's easy to scare people about change in yeah. immigration refugee policy and so forth if it's well done, if it's based on research, if it's good policy, it needs to be done the scary thing is not to change the US yeah. got Donald Trump because Obama George W. Bush his father Clinton, no one since Ronald Reagan, and even then uh, the reforms weren't, didn't go as far as they should have has succeeded in reforming U.S. immigration. And that's created huge problems. Uh, outdated programs, you know the family situation there, um, this large population of of um, dreamers and other uh, out-of-status, we would call them in Canada people, who, 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 who don't have a pathway to permanence. Um, and that should never have been allowed to continue for so long. It's one of the the the, the the greatest tragedies, I would say, of, of American politics over the last um, several decades in our lifetimes.
0: No, I remember the hyperbole over the investor program. I think there was also a lobbyist group that was formed to try to allege that closing the investor program was racism, um, which was just a like. Yeah, I mean, I think well, it's those, those just saying that speaks for
1: like. Those cards get played, unfortunately, too often. In immigration policy debate, especially online on social media, and, and we really need to. I mean, yes, there are there there is a racist history. Um, I mean, racism still exists in Canada, including in systemic form. I accept that, but the policies that literally, in black and white, uh, on paper, excluded certain groups. Uh, and for many decades excluded blacks, among others, South Asians, uh, from Canadian immigration programs, that's a long time ago now. That's before any of the three of us were born. Uh, And our programs, thankfully, are open to everyone. Uh, And we get large numbers of people in almost every category from every continent and almost every country on the planet. Um, We just need to to do it well, and at the same time, uh, you know, deepen the 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 culture of diversity that we have in this country, so that people know more about each other, uh, their experience, their country's experience, their cultural experience. Um, that's what makes being a Canadian exciting. You know, living in communities where you are the neighbor of someone who had a very different experience from you before they came here, whose ancestors had different experiences. Um, And we know we can make it work, but it takes trust, tolerance and dialogue, not um, hot-headed rhetoric and populist slogans.
0: Another question, um, and I'm just bearing in mind of the time, um, but one uh, more question that we asked uh, Mr. McCollum as well, and which I think we'll ask everyone was or all previous ministers was your approach to when you were approached by MPs or members of the public to intervene on specific files and how you decided when to help with a minister's permit and when not to. That's very simple. We
1: did very few ministerial permits. We put these cases into the hands of uh, the professional public service. And we found, you know, as any MP's office phoning up the call centers um, that serve them uh, nationally, that we got the best service that way. If you put out the message that the minister can get you to the head of the line or get you better service, then you're creating um, problems for yourself and undermining uh, what is ultimately a rule-based system that ought to serve everyone equally. Um, and so, you know, the case of uh, Alan Curdy, for example, who, who never applied to come to Canada, but whose relatives had applied, um, that was given to me uh, by a Vancouver area then MP um, in the House of Commons. It went to my staff and then into the part of the department that was working on Syrian refugees. And our response was, if that fa- if your family wants to come to Canada, you need to apply for this program, not that program. Uh, and the family was on the way to doing that when uh, when tragedy struck. Uh, and unfortunately, it was the you know, the uncle, um, not Alan and his parents themselves, who were part of the application at that stage. But um, I wish uh, you know the the saddest part of my time as minister was not. Uh, just the tragedy of Alan Kurdi losing his life, it was seeing um, Syria go up in flames, a genocide happen, and the largest uh, forced migration of the post-war era uh, occur on uh, on our watch um, in our lifetimes. I, I really regret that the international community did not become more involved in Syria to prevent uh, that suffering. And I'm glad we... Um, did more than other countries, including the United States, and continued to do more under the current government, I think we need to remain focused on these issues.
0: Yeah. And I think my last question, and it's something I wish I'd asked Minister McCollum, because it's something that makes sense to ask everyone, which is, if you were giving advice to a future minister of immigration... um, or if, uh, you know, Aaron O'Toole should become prime minister and he says, uh, you know, uh, Chris, what, what, you know, should my mandate letter, assuming the conservatives continue with these mandate letters, to the next immigration minister be or advice to the next immigration minister? Would you, what would you recommend to someone filling? Well, l-
1: listen closely to your predecessors. I did that. um to with Jason Kenney, um, had some of his people continue on with me. Um, I wrote a letter, actually a, a transition letter to John McCallum, because I thought the issues we had been dealing with were so important that it was important for him to have my perspective on them. Um, so that's number one. Number two, uh, put your trust in the public service. Be not every part of the government of Canada is equally strong, but I would say IRCC is among the strongest policy and operational teams any government in Canada has. Um, And uh, you you can't take good decisions without their advice. Uh, And my third piece of advice would be to be ambitious. Um, we, We don't have much time ever in a portfolio as cabinet ministers, you need to get on your priorities and listen, formulate uh, good policy and act uh, quickly because Canadians are depending on it. They may not see immigration in the headlines every day, but they are counting on the government to be. These days, that. they maybe
2: do see immigration in, yeah, the, well, in the headlines every day.
1: Yeah. Uh, and as you said, whether
2: they do or not, they feel they're, the they're
0: counting right. on this on this work to continue. How much notice did you get, when that, or does a minister get, when they're going to become a minister? Not much.
1: I mean, there'd been a rumor of a cabinet shuffle that summer of 2013, but then you get called to Ottawa, told, you know, asked if you'd like the portfolio, but I I think very few say no. Um, And uh, then you have to sit on your hands and wait for it actually to happen, which is usually a week or two or less I can't I can't remember the time lag um so you don't get much notice and and obviously in that time you can't do anything to prepare you can't talk to the public servants you just uh on the day you're sworn in you show up and say where are the briefing books and how much time do you have (laughs) I remember very late nights um and, and for me it was Relatively easy because I'm interested in these issues, and I'd been a federal public service—you know—servant work servant, worked in a deputy minister's. I was worked on international issues, and immigration is is one of those uh, portfolios that's part of our of our global um, our global e- effort. Uh, right. So I worked alongside immigration officers in, in many parts of the world, but it's um, it's complex. You know, you know from your oh, work. Yes. Uh, yes. How, not an how, easy one to how many that. immigration lawyers do you know who really know IRPA well? You know, not that many. Or the citizenship uh, act. It's it's very hard.
0: dabbler's should. Uh, it's not something to dabble in.
1: No, uh, but and uh, but people do, as you know, yeah. and um and and so we need ministers that are well briefed. Doesn't mean you need to spend spent your career in that portfolio, but you need to know how to come up to speed quickly know-how to separate uh, good advice from, from you know, bad lobbying. <laughs> and uh, a- and you have to have uh, th- that fire in the belly to actually want to get things done. Because it's very easy to postpone and defer. And, and there's a whole school of thought in government. You know, let's call it the Mackenzie King school of thought that says uh, you just, you know, wait and things will take care of themselves. I, I don't personally subscribe to that, especially in our complex modern world. These are big institutions. They need to be kept up to date. We need to be kicking the tires and um, mm. revising and, and updating policy continuously.
2: Chris, we really appreciate your candor today. I for one found it extremely informing and super interesting. I, I'm sure Steve feels the same way. Yeah.
0: Pleasure. Thanks for doing this. I, yes, yeah, I hope really. uh, I hope you stay involved in uh, in the scene.
1: Well, oh, I'll stay involved in everything that's taken <laughs> part of my life, whether it's Russia or Afghanistan or um, national defense or immigration. They're all permanent features for me. So you, I noticed you, on Twitter that Afghanistan
0: is still a very strong passion of yours.
1: Yeah. Well, especially now because. Um, We're at a delicate moment in the peace process and the transition to a new president, and all of this. Um, I can't imagine just shake off. Yeah, the goals we all fought for and sacrificed for um, have not yet been achieved, but I don't think we're as far from achieving them as some people
0: say. But we need clarity. So, yeah, I'll be there on Twitter and elsewhere. I think in the book, weren't at least one of your children was born in Afghanistan? Well. Let's say made in Afghanistan, born. in <laughs> uh, But but all
1: all of our three kids have Afghan middle names. No, so Zuleika uh, is one. Uh, yeah. uh, Malalai is the second daughter, and the son who has never been close to Afghanistan is called um, Zalmai, Julius Zalmai. So yeah, Afghanistan's part of our of our family in a big way, and um, and it's. You know, it's one of the issues of our time. No one wants wars and NATO missions to continue indefinitely. But uh, if there's one country that deserves peace sometime soon, it's Afghanistan. And I I think it's pretty clear what needs to happen, Uh, but the political will is lacking at the moment. And uh, those of us who are passionate about this have to keep speaking up in my view. I hope you will as well.
0: Yeah. Awesome. All right, well, thanks for, uh, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks, you guys.
2: Take care. Bye-bye. Bye
0: bye. Bye.